people have asked me about our choices of movies. So I want to say, first we chose movies that are currently playing because these movies in some way reflect stories, questions, themes in the culture right now. And then for the movies at the Colonial Theater, we wanted to choose some classic movies of different genres that contained within them spiritual questions or spiritual themes. So this morning the question is, what can we take from Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors? What can we think about? What could be meaningful to us in our everyday lives from this movie about privileged Jewish folks in New York City? Who has seen the movie? Raise your hands if you've seen it. A fair amount. Uh, at any time. <laughs> okay. Uh, I know that at least for some of the people who saw it last Sunday at the Colonial, it, it raised some questions and had them thinking uh, for a couple of days at least. So if you have seen the movie recently enough to remember, think about what questions you had afterwards and maybe even take a minute to jot them down somewhere. There are a lot of questions that the movie raises, and here are some questions that critics have said the movie raised for them. How does it feel to be responsible for murder? And how do you feel, can you live with yourself if you are responsible for murder? How can anyone believe in God after the Holocaust? Why do the good suffer and the evil prosper? What is virtue? What's love? What's truth? Where is God? What is God? Is God uncaring? Has God abandoned us? Or was God never there in the first place? Anybody have any to add? I think these are important life questions, and how we find our own answers provides meaning and structure in our own lives. What gives structure to your morality? What gives you hope in the face of suffering? We all have to find our own answers. I'm going to share some Unitarian Universalist answers and some of my own answers at this particular time in my life, but you also have to find your own answers. But first, let me tell you a little bit about the movie. On the slide, I think, are the main characters. Can you find that? The main characters are Judah, who's a, um, a wealthy, successful ophthalmologist. Yeah, I don't remember how I ordered the slides. Oh, and we can't read it very well anyway. Uh, Jack is uh, Judah's brother. Jack. Um, we don't know exactly what his occupation is, but we do know that he has connections with the Mafia. And um, Dolores is Judah's mistress. Miriam is Judah's wife. Ben is a rabbi, Judah's patient. He is going blind from a degenerative disease. And Cliff is Ben's brother-in-law. He's an unsuccessful, unhappy man unhappily married as well, and he is a film producer. Lester is Ben's brother, Cliff's brother-in-law, and a very successful TV producer of situation comedies. Louis Levy is the subject of Cliff's documentary films, and Hallie is a film producer and Cliff's love interest. 
So the movie is really two men's stories that are intertwined. And Judah's story begins. In the first scene, we see Judah being honored for his charity work, his philanthropic work, at a formal dinner in his honor. And he gives a speech, and he says that his Orthodox Jewish father used to always say to him, Judah, the eyes of God are on us. The eyes of God are on us always. Judah jokes how, uh, why not become an eye doctor? He wants to find out what God's eyes are like. And we soon see that appearance is very, very important to Judah. What things look like matters. He's been having an affair with Dolores for two years, and she's now trying to communicate with Miriam. He fears the loss of his status, the loss of respect. Because Dolores also threatens to reveal his financial improprieties. Judah is a little bit of a fraud. So Judah tells Rabbi Ben about his dilemma. And Ben gives him wise advice. He confessed that he confessed to his wife about the affair, asked for forgiveness, and worked to repair his marriage. I want to say, as a former marriage counselor, that's very wise advice. But Judah rejects it, saying that Miriam would never forgive him and never get over it. So he then seeks advice from his brother Jack, the one with mafia connections. Jack says he lives in the real world, but his world is a shady world full of criminals and crooked dealings. Jack says to Judah he can get someone to fix Judah's problem. Judah is at first shocked by the idea of murdering his mistress, but then he gives Jack the money and tells him, go ahead. After the murder, Judah is stunned and distressed by what he has done, but by the end of the movie, which we see is four months later, he's over it, and he's seen happily dancing with his wife. The other story is Cliff's. Cliff is unhappy, unsuccessful, out of work, unhappily married, Lester, his brother-in-law, offers Cliff a job in order to help um, Cliff's wife, Lester's sister. The job is to make a film about Lester. Now, Cliff despises his brother-in-law, really, really despises him. But he decides to take the money, take the job for the money. On the set, Cliff's attracted to Hallie. And he shows her his um, films of this philosophy professor, Louis Levy. Um, Holly's impressed with the philosophy professor, and she suggests that she could help bring this film to completion. Cliff and Holly are both quite shocked when the professor kills himself. Cliff asks Holly to marry him. She refuses. And at the end of the movie, she's engaged to Lester. So, at the end of this movie, which someone said to me seemed morally ambiguous at best, it seems that Judah can get away with murder. That is, that good things happen to bad people. It seems that nothing can stop bad things happening from good people. The rabbi, who is a good man, his sister calls him a saint, his blindness can't be pre prevented. The philosophy professor's suicide is not prevented. 
and the overtly financially successful people seem to win. God said, God? No, Judah. (laughs) God doesn't speak much in this movie. Judah says, God is a luxury I can't afford. And he says, if you want a happy ending, go see a Hollywood movie. Not a Woody Allen movie, we should add. So here's some things that some critics have said about the movie. The point with the plot about Cliff is that good intentions mean nothing. What actually matters is success. The second point is that there is no God and morality is purely up to the individual. Another one. This darkest, most cynical Alan comedy is frankly a complaint against God for turning a blind eye to evil. And another one. Alan isn't really saying it's okay to murder people. He's not even saying that life is all a matter of luck. What he is saying is that if God allowed the Holocaust to happen, then the very notion of justice is a sham. Woody Allen himself said, crimes and misdemeanors is about people who don't see. They don't see themselves as other people see them, and they don't see right and wrong. Allen stated that the rabbi, Ben, is not only physically blind, but also metaphorically blind, blind to other things and the realities of life. Still, Allen also believes that the rabbi's blindness is a gift. He's blessed and lucky because he has the best gift anyone could have. He has genuine religious faith. Before I say a little more about my own reactions to the movie, I want to say a little about Woody Allen and Judaism. As a boy, Allen lived with his grandparents in Brooklyn. They were Orthodox Jews, and they sent Woody Allen Konigsberg to Hebrew school every Saturday. He went to the synagogue every week with his grandfather. His grandmother didn't usually go, and at the right age, he was bar mitzvahed. After that, he no longer attended. He had an ecumenical view of religion. That is, he found all organized faiths to be equally useless. Alan said, I was unmoved by the synagogue. I was not interested in the Seder. I was not interested in the Hebrew school. I was not interested in being Jewish. It just didn't matter to me. I wasn't ashamed of it, nor was I proud of it. I thought those Catholic kids who couldn't see movies because the League of Decency wouldn't permit them, or who said their catechism were silly beyond belief. What a waste of time. And I felt the same about Hebrew school. My mind was drifting out of the window, not learning anything, just counting the minutes until it was over. Ellen describes himself as a boy as amoral and impervious. He tells a story about uh, finding a counterfeit nickel and wanting to give it to his grandfather for, in exchange for five pennies. Um, and he loved his grandfather. His mother pointed out that wasn't a good idea. Ellen was born in 1935, which is just the right age for the Holocaust to totally impact his childhood and affect his worldview. So research suggests that whatever is happening in the world about our age 10 to 12 strongly impacts our lifelong worldview. The events 
of the Holocaust have affected him and Judaism a great deal. In Crimes and Misdemeanors, Judah imagines a childhood Seder. His atheist leftist aunt challenges, challenges Judah's faithful father. Six million Jews were killed and Hitler was not punished. Don't fill these boys' heads with superstitious nonsense. She says, if a man can get away with murder and he chooses not to be bothered by ethics, then he's home free. Remember, history is written by the winners. And if the Nazis had won, the future generations would understand World War II very differently. So this aunt represents a significant threat in Judaism after World War II. In his book, Judaism, published in 2003, Nicholas DeLange, professor of Hebrew and Jewish studies at Cambridge University, wrote, The annihilation of six million Jews by the Nazis and their collaborators is a blow from which the Jewish people has not yet recovered, either physically or psychologically. Indeed, it is hard to see how a, how a complete recovery is possible. And he talks about the theological blow. If the catastrophe of the Nazi Holocaust undermined the faith in progress, it also undermined traditional religious faith. How could a perfectly free, perfectly loving, perfectly good, perfectly just God, active in history, caring for creation, and with a special interest in the people of Israel, have willed or even tolerated evil on such a scale? Deliberate evil on such a scale. So one Jewish theological response is, I think, like Woody Allen's. DeLang wrote, The most radical response is the denial of the traditional belief in a loving God, the death of God theology. Having rejected their illusions about God, people are called to face up to their existential situation and find their own meaning in the meaninglessness of existence. It reminds me a little of a saying. Have you heard this? If God is good, then he is not God. If God is God, then he is not good. I'm going to repeat that. If God is good, he is not God. If God is God, he is not good. Yeah? Still, Alan's biographer wrote that Alan is a reluctant and pessimistic agnostic. That is, he hopes that there is a God, but doubts it. And he wishes he had been born with religious faith. And he believes that even if God is absent, it's important to lead an honest and responsible life. In the film, Judah's aunt asks Judah's father, if all your faith is wrong, Saul, then what? And Saul says, I will still have lived a good life. Like Saul, we at Wellsprings affirm the importance of a spiritual life and of a life lived with integrity. So, I want to say to Woody Allen, tell me about this God you don't believe in. Like Unitarian Universalist John Burens, who wrote, To those who tell me I don't believe in God, I often reply, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. Chances are I don't believe in him either. And so to Woody, I don't believe in that God either. I do affirm our Wellspring's belief, which is a source beyond single definition. 
God without being able to define God. The divine is unlimited by any single text, gender, or dogma. We come to know the divine by living fully, loving generously, and being who we are called to be. For me, God encourages the good. God pushes us towards the good. God is divine love. I believe that we are each held in divine love and that this divine love wishes us to grow to our best selves, wishes the universe to grow to its best self. God is not, for me, arbitrary power. God is not a person. God is not male. Alan told his biography the biographer that he wished he'd been born with religious faith and he might have a point. There seems to be a little evidence that uh, faith and spiritual temperament is at least in part genetic. But in any case, for Unitarian Universalists and for me, religion is experiential. It's direct and personal. It's part of our authentic experience of being alive, our own experience. 20th century Unitarian minister A. Powell Davies put it this way. He said, belief is many things and so is disbelief. But religion is something that happens to you when you open your mind to truth, your conscience to justice, and your heart to love. Unitarian Universalist process theologian Charles Hartshorn wrote one of my favorite theological articles. It's called Six Common Mistakes About God. And John, I think we have a slide with the six mistakes. Now, could do more than one sermon on each of these, so I'm not going to talk about any of them very much. But I think that perhaps these are the ways that Woody Allen thought about God and the God that he suggests doesn't exist. Harshorn says that going along with these mistakes naturally leads to skepticism and atheism. So the six mistakes are that God is absolutely perfect and therefore unchangeable. The whole idea of absolutely perfect is kind of a strange concept. Um, and process theologians would suggest that God changes. Um, omnipotence. This is the one that I think often gets us sometimes when we're 12, 13, 14. The idea that God is all-powerful, perfect in power, and omniscience, that whatever happens is eternally known to God. John Calvin and Calvinist theology say that whatever is going to happen in the world was eternally known to God at the very beginning. Everything. Um, the fourth is God's unsympathetic goodness, meaning that God doesn't have a personal kind of love for anything, but he's sort of like the sun, brings good, but just there. Um, the other two are immortality as a career after death and revelation as infallible. So Harshorn quotes theologian Whitehead who said, they gave unto God the properties of Caesar. When your conception of power comes from emperors, kings, feudal lords, dictators, then you may see God in that way. Judgmental, arbitrary, distant. This idea also denies the existence of human freedom. Process theologians see God is changing in response to the changing world, which is also a theme in the Hebrew Bible. Many of the characters in the Hebrew Bible argue with God and sometimes the human wins. God changes in response to what happens. For example, God promises Noah that he will never flood the earth again. 
So for process theologians, God is not an anthropomorphic judge. He's not the big old white man with a long beard who's judging you with a book of deeds, but is the fellow sufferer who understands. Sort of like what Martin Luther King said. He said the universe is on the side of justice. It says to those who struggle for justice, you do not struggle alone. God struggles with you. Harchorn wrote, from childhood I learned to worship divine love. God's power is simply the appeal of unsurpassable love. And this theology, which is pretty much my own, recognizes human freedom and recognizes that there is chance and randomness in nature. The idea of omnipotence and omniscience rule out any idea of human freedom. I think we're not completely free, of course, but every day we make real choices. We are free to make decisions. Archwarn also said that the root of evil, suffering, misfortune, and wickedness is the same as the root of good, joy, and happiness, and that is freedom, decision-making. Having been a psychotherapist for many years, I actually don't find it very hard to explain human evil. So, in the film, the philosophy professor who kills himself, he was the one who gave Cliff hope. But his suicide is to represent some ambiguity about that hope. But the professor was played by Martin Bergman, who is in reality a renowned psychoanalyst and a professor of psychoanalysis. Bergman wrote those words, and Bergman has not committed suicide. Bergman expresses a kind of faith and hope in the movie. It is the faith and hope that Cliff at the first believes in. He said, we need to remember that when we are born, we need a good deal of love to persuade us to stay in the world. We are the sum total of our choices. Events unfold so unpredictably, so unfairly. It is only we, with our capacity to love, that give meaning to the indifferent universe. And yet, most human beings seem to have the ability to keep trying and even find joy from simple things like their family, their work, and from the hope that future generations will understand more. So that's Bergman's hope. I think you heard a little bit of mine. Where, what is your hope? And if you don't know the answer, that's okay. Just keep exploring. And I'd like to close this morning with the story of a hopeful nine-year-old theologian. The story comes from her mother's book, The Blessings of a Skin Knee, Jewish Teachings to Raise Self-Reliant Teachers. Children, self-reliant children. When Emma was in the third grade, Michael overheard her friend Mara challenge her, saying, There is no God, you know. Yes, there is, replied Emma. Then how could he let so many of your people die in the Holocaust? An interesting pronoun since Mara is also Jewish. God didn't do that. Bad people did. And God can't do everything. 
It's impossible. But he did do one thing. He gave you and me the gift of life. And it's our job to use our gift and to make the world better than we found it. The key people who killed people didn't use their gift in the right way. May we all use our gifts in the right way. May it be so. Amen.